What's it like to take part in a flight training exercise with a B-52 bomber? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. Left two, left seven away, switch is safe. Defense News Air Warfare reporter Stephen Losey takes us behind the scenes to uncover the important lessons learned from flying with a Vietnam War-era bomber. What does it all mean for defense and security? You'll find out in this bonus episode of the Early Bird Brief. I'm your host, Jonathan Lairfeld. Hi, Steve. Welcome back to the pod. Glad to be here. So we just had a great conversation about how the Air Force is prepping to fly nearly century-old bombers, and I'd highly recommend folks check out that podcast if they haven't already, but you yourself actually got to fly in one of these planes. I want to talk to you all about it, so I'll begin by asking you to paint a picture for listeners. Can you describe for us what it was like flying in the B-52? It's loud and it's cramped. So uh, there's not a whole lot of sp- these are some of the these are some of the biggest bombers that have ever ever been made. But there's not a whole lot of space for the crew. You've got the uh, the pilot and the co-pilot up front, and there's a seat right behind the pilot seat um, where a visitor can sit. In the back, you've got the electronic warfare station uh, at the rear of the upper level. Then you take a ladder down, and that's where you find the weapon systems operator station who is in charge of dropping the bombs. You kind of have to like hunch yourself over to as you kind of like walk through the B-52 and there's not a whole lot of space to kind of like get in and out of various spots. It's also very loud. The engines make a lot of noise. You have to wear earplugs at all times to protect your hearing and it's impossible to hear what anybody is saying, even if you're like yelling in someone's ear right next to you. You can't hear a thing unless you use the airplane's intercom. Can you help listeners visualize a little bit more what it, what the layout of the plane looks like and where you got to be in it? So up front of the B-52 is the cockpit where the pilot and the co-pilot sit. Right behind the pilot seat is what's called the jump seat where maybe an instructor pilot might sit maybe a uh, guest or a passenger might sit. The hallway, it's not really a hallway, but like the passageway behind that, there's not a whole lot of space there. You have to sort of stoop down to avoid uh, knocking your head on the ceiling. I knocked my head a couple of times. I was very grateful that I was wearing the helmet at that point. But you go back there and there's the electronic warfare station that is kind of where the EW officer performs kind of like defensive uh, operations to protect the plane against enemy threats. And there's a ladder that you go down to reach the weapon systems officer station. It's kind of a dark spot. There's red lights shining down. They have like an old school green radar sweeping and the green screen kind of like glows on, cast this green glow on the Wizzo whose job it is to kind of like punch in the targets and control the weapons that are being released. There's not a whole lot of amenities on this plane. (laughs) Even though the plane flies for hours on end, sometimes 18 hours, sometimes 36 hours straight, sometimes on ultra long missions, even longer than that. They have to find ways to entertain themselves. Sometimes they'll bring a book. Sometimes they'll plug music into a player. There's a little bunk 
behind the cockpit where a crew member can kind of catch a little shut eye on these long haul flights. They have even have like a small little oven uh, for heating up meals. But most of the time, the crew will just kind of like bring their own light sandwiches, snacks, big bottles of water because it's real easy to get dehydrated um, at high altitudes for hours and hours on end. So you took off from Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. How did the crew prepare you for this exercise? At how long do they typically uh, prepare for it or, or need to learn how to operate a plane like this? So I'll start with the, uh, the training. We flew with the 11th Bomb Squadron, which is uh, part of the formal training unit at Barksdale Air Force Base that teaches young airmen how to fly and operate B-52s. This schoolhouse takes, give or take, like nine months or so, usually. About half of that is um, academics. About another roughly half is uh, actually flying operations on the flight line. So, yeah, so that takes about nine months. When we visited Barksdale, we had to go through a lot of training to learn how to uh, eject from the plane if things started to go south. Now, this is a training flight with professional airmen, but... Anything can happen. You never know if something might go wrong. So they made it very clear to us how we would strap on the parachute, how we would operate the parachute, uh, how we would operate the uh, pull the lever to eject the seat if something were to go wrong. And the instructor pilot made it very clear that if he gets on the intercom and says, eject, 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 three times in rapid succession, that means you drop everything and you pull that lever because things can go south within seconds. Can you give listeners a quick reminder about why it's such a big deal that the Air Force plans to keep this bomber, the B-52, in service? Yeah, so the Air Force has been flying the B-52 for about the last 60 plus years or so. It's been a part of every major military conflict, more or less. Um, During that time, from the Cold War to the war against the Islamic State. The Air Force is now in the process of getting ready to retire some of its other bombers, the B-1 Lancer, the B-2 Spirit, while they work on bringing on a brand new stealth bomber, the B-21 Raider. So the plan is, starting sometime in the 2030s, the Air Force is going to have a two-bomber fleet, the B-52 with a whole bunch of revamps, including new engines, and the B-21 Raider. And that's supposed to keep The B-52J is what it's going to be called, flying until about 2060. So what type of maintenance issues did you notice the crew had to handle before and during your flight with the B-52? We flew on a plane called the Red Gremlin that rolled off the production line about 1960. And there were a couple of issues that this plane had, both large and small. The instructor pilot's digital display wasn't working. The radar altimeter was down, though that started working once we got off the ground. And one of the other big problems was a display for the targeting pod, which they needed to do part of their planned bombing training. That targeting pod display wasn't working. They even tried to bring out some maintainers to see if they could get that targeting pod display working real quick, but it was just going to take too long. And if it took too long, we were going to run the risk of missing the aerial refueling connection. So they said, we're just going to get this show on the road and get done what we can get done. Can you tell us more about that aerial refueling component of the training exercise? Yeah, that was one of the things that the training flight started doing first once it got off the ground. It met up 
with a KC-135 Stratotanker at a Scott Air Force Base in uh, Illinois. They met up over Arkansas and started doing air refueling training, one pass after another after another. The student pilot was really trying to learn the finer points of how to do aerial refueling. It's a really hard thing to do because the B-52, obviously, is a massive plane, 185-foot wingspan, 185,000 pounds of hardware that he's controlling. But those stratotankers, those are also very big airplanes. So you got two gigantic planes in very close proximity to each other. And the pilot of the B-52 and the boom operator on the KC-135 are trying to ease the refueling boom into the receptacle on the upper end of the B-52. Now there's a lot of aerodynamics to consider and we saw how tricky it can be to learn how to navigate those aerodynamics. There was one point where the student pilot kind of went into the downwash of the uh, KC-135 Stratotanker. This meant that he was essentially drafting off the plane above him and so the aerodynamic drag disappeared suddenly. The B-52 sped up a little bit and got closer to the KC-135 than the tanker was comfortable. I saw a buzzer go off. The instructor pilot pushed the student pilot's hand off the throttle, eased the throttle back. The KC-135 pulled away. After the KC-135 pulled away, the instructor pilot laid out to the student where things went wrong and gave him a lot of pointers on how to find what he called the sweet spot for aerial refueling, how to make really tiny corrections to the power and the steering of the plane to get it right in the spot that is just perfect for an aerial refueling. And then on the very next try, the student pilot took those lessons to heart and nailed it very next time. That's, that's exactly where you want to be, right there. That was a really good job, dude. I just think... So can you tell us also about the simulated bombing practice that took place? After the aerial refueling finished, the plane turned back to Fort Johnson, which used to be Fort Polk in Louisiana, started practicing simulated bombing releases. There weren't any actual bombs or even uh, dummy bombs on board, but they went through all the steps in the process as if there were. So we heard the Bombay doors whirring open and thumping into place. The weapon systems officer was punching in targeting coordinates. They were changing things up on the fly to teach the students how to respond quickly to emerging threats. And um, then they went through all the steps in the process for releasing weapons. However, that's when something happened that wasn't planned. The student pilot was trying to practice what's called a break turn. This is an evasive maneuver where a B-52 will turn swiftly out of the way in one direction or another when a threat is coming uh, towards the plane. The student pilot turned off the autopilot without realizing it was going to pitch the nose up, the plane jumped from about 19,000 feet to more than 20,000 feet. Now that was out of the plane's assigned airspace, which could have been dangerous if there was another plane in that 20,000 foot range. The instructor pilot grabbed the yoke immediately, pushed it down, and then turned hard to the left. So within a few seconds, the plane lurches up, dives down, turns to the left, it was very clear that that was not going according to plan. There was one point where, in my mind, I thought, there's a non-zero chance I might have to pull the ejection seat and punch out of this plane. Fortunately, it was under control. 
very quickly after the instructor pilot grabbed the yoke. We landed. We did, uh, did actually landed a bunch of times. They carried out a whole lot of like touch and go landings to practice the landing process where the plane uh, touches down and then takes off again, loops around for another landing. And then we went back for the debrief. The instructor pilot started running through what went right with the training flight and also what didn't go quite right. Yeah. Tell us more about what that debrief was like. What, what did you learn? What did the students learn in that experience? So the instructors went through each step in the flight and said, this went well. The, the refueling, that went pretty well. They hit all the targets in the simulated bombing that they were supposed to do. That was great. They weren't able to do part of their targeting training because of that problem with the targeting pod screen I mentioned earlier, but they said, well, it is what it is, basically. However, they then got to the part of the flight where the plane lurched up and then down. It was very clear the instructor pilot was not happy about how that went. At one point, he told the uh, the student that he was not entirely comfortable, that he wasn't going to break the airplane at that point. Did anybody, has anybody telling you to like kick off the autopilot and make that aggressive of a turn? Like if people, someone taught you that? Or did you uh, teach yourself that? My first ever brake turn, they said, Timmy's autopilot. Who? I don't want to out him, but I, I think it was feud. I mean, okay. it was a So like, I would say for the level that you're at, use the autopilot. Because okay. the autopilot will prevent you from breaking the airplane. Right. Like the roll rate that you did today, I wasn't comfortable that you were not going to break the airplane. Not to mention the fact that we didn't have control of the airplane because we climbed 300 feet mm-hmm. out of the airspace. But even though it was an uncomfortable conversation, the student pilot told me later that he learned from those lessons. And on the f- flights ever since then, his flying got a lot better. His aerial refueling got better. The instructor pilot told me these criticisms aren't personal. It's a very dangerous job they're doing, lives are at stake, not just the lives of the crew on board, but the lives of potentially innocent people on the ground who might be hit if a bomb goes the wrong way. And those are some of the most important lessons that instructors try to teach students during a B-52 training flight. The, The nuts and bolts of the flight operations, that's important, but they really want them to understand how serious these life and death matters are and how crucially important it is to get right. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on social media at Defense underscore News and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Larifold, and produced by Zimone Z. Perez. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. Have a great day.